asked you about your interests as a young kid. How old were you when you started to think about this? Well, I lost my belief in God when I was about nine. Okay. Uh, for the reason I give. Yeah. I mean, I thought a bit fully. Since God, as they described him, was very bad, Mm. and he wasn't right about his goodness, why should I believe anything else? That made me... Before that, I thought of being a monk. (laughs) Really? (laughs) When I was seven. Well, I... When I believed it, I mean, obviously that was the thing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Did, 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 didn't you consider the possibility that there is well, an evil I, God? Well, I, sh- I should have considered the possibility that God exists and they're just wrong about his goodness. Exactly. Um, but I didn't consider that. No. I think I thought if they're wrong about that, why should I? <laughs> but you grew up in a religious family? No, no. I was at school that I got my religious... Teaching. But they don't take it very seriously in England. No. Um, not today, even? No, not no. even today, no. No, I would think the proportion of the population that takes religion seriously is about 5%. Similar figures. I mean, if you ask them whether they believe in God, 70% say yes. But their attitude is like towards the royal family. You know, <laughs> I see what you mean. Um, only 5%. Go to church at any times other than Christmas and you know, special celebrations. Mm. Um, but you define yourself as an atheist today. Yes. Mm. What, what is your relation to the, the so-called new atheist movement, Dawkins and Hitchens? And um, well, I rather admire <laughs> uh, Hitchens. I think Dawkins' book was not. Uh, one of his best because it's quite outside his area Hitchens I haven't read the whole book but I've read lots of quotations and I think he was very brave to give the title God is not great mm. Mm. Um, yeah. I am struck by the extent to which people believe what they want to believe in, in America People don't want to believe in global warming, so they just don't believe it. Yeah, uh, at the last presidential election, every candidate for the presi- for the Republican nomination had to imply that he didn't believe in global warming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and evolution. Uh, Europe, Europe, I mean, it may also be true in China, but Europe is one of the few parts of the world, as I say, in which mm-hmm. religion has receded. Mm. Um, so completely but uh, if you you look at though I have to say I was rather impressed some years ago when American Catholics were given an opinion poll about whether the Pope was a reliable guide on moral matters 80% said no it was all artificial birth control but it's quite impressive yeah true but I don't, I don't understand how people can believe something that goes against uh, known facts. I mean, it should cause some cognitive dissonance, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, how do you well, the extraordinary thing is the fundamentalists in southern states, the Baptists, say everything in the Bible is true, but there are all these contradictions. Mm. <laughs> no, I agree, it's just very striking. What, what, what would you say about the relation between calling yourself an agnostic and calling yourself an atheist? Well, um, I think the position of many people is that they are atheists 
with respect to the God of the Abrahamic religions. But they might be agnostic about whether there's some other ultimate explanation for the universe. Yeah. Um, but it's a, a slightly mover. it's a slightly misleading phrase. But its best defence um, is the one that says, "Well, one objection to the theists is that they're confident that God exists." And if you say, "Well, I'm confident that He doesn't," that's similarly dogmatic. Mm. And so some scientists say, "Well, we don't." believe that our theories must be true. They're just the best hypotheses. Mm. So I think that's why some people use the term agnostic. They mm. don't want to be dogmatic the other way. Mm. Uh, Huxley, I think, invented the term. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. But th this leads to another interesting question. About I, I mean, mm. I'm, one I'm very struck by, we had, we've come to know a very good family from Lithuania and the very admirable woman she was surprised to learn that people who weren't religious could care about morality and be morally good. I think when people wrongly assume that we all use the phrase morally wrong in the same sense, and I think that's just not true at all. Mm. I think there's at least a billion people in the world for whom the thought it's wrong is forbidden by God. That's what they're believing. Mm. Yeah, that's what it means to say yes. it's wrong. Yeah. But still, I can't really understand how you could you could even you couldn't even say that God is good if you don't think there is an independent morality from God. Oh yes, absolutely. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, within Christianity, there's the very clear distinction. Some people claim the act is wrong because God forbids it. Others claim Christians no. God forbids it because it's wrong. Exactly. And it doesn't depend on God. No. Um, I actually had some pride. I don't know any German, but I realized that a sentence from Kant is always mistranslated, which goes, all imperatives are expressed with an ought. Well, in English, no imperative. What he should have said in German is all imperatives could be expressed with the word solemn. And that word does double duty. It's untranslatable in English because you can use it both to state a command and to state a normative truth. And so some Germans have said, yes, it's harder for a German to distinguish between a command and a normative truth because this word is ambiguous. And when both Schopenhauer and Nietzsche ceased to believe in morality, it's because they thought, well, there's no commander. So there's no morality. Mm. The very and Nietzsche says, for the English, morality is not yet a problem. Well, it isn't a problem. He, he quotes George Eliot, who was confident that there was no God and no afterlife, and many things were morally required. Mm. <laughs> and Nietzsche regards that as ridiculous. Um, yeah, yeah. But still, I think, I mean, if you look at the school, the, the, the school books, for example, in Sweden, when, on religion, they also include all the discussions of ethics and morality. And I, I believe that that makes children think that religion and ethics is the same thing. Yes, well, but, but on the other hand, I mean, there would be many Catholics who would say, no, God doesn't create morality. Mm. I mean, you ought to obey some of his commands. 
special ones about the day of worship once a week, mm. but not the main commands. Mm. Um, yeah, but as I said in my talk, I'm I've been struggling to try and undo some of the damage that's been done to people's belief in normative truths. And the remark that really struck me, an economist gave a talk, mm. and he said, well, I made no value judgments. And someone in the audience said, yes, you did. You said that if a policy was better for some people and worse for no one, oh, it's in my thing, we should adopt it. And he replied, that's not a value judgment. Everyone accepts it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think that, that's really a disaster. Mm -hmm. Really a disaster. Mm -hmm. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, you you mentioned in in your email to me that you believe there are, there are objective absolute morality. Yes. Well, uh, not just morality. There are lots of other normative truths. Like, for um, example. Well, our reasons to believe things, mm. and our reasons to want to avoid pain, and so on. Mm. And, and your definition of exist here is that it must be true in all possible worlds. Is that the definition? I think, I think all of the fundamental normative truths are true in all possible worlds. That's why, if you believe in God, he couldn't alter them. You know, he couldn't make it permissible mm. to torture children for your own amusement. Mm. Uh, all, yeah. I mean, I usefully, to defend, I may again say this here, to defend normative truths, I compare them with logical, mathematical, and modal. Yeah. And modal is quite a good example. Two and two must equal four, couldn't possibly equal three and five. Now, that's not a fact about the actual world. Because mm. it says, in every possible world, mm. two and two couldn't equal five. And I think the same about... Normative it's like truth. a prime, a prime yeah. number. I mean, and one example I may have given you of a normative truth which has a, clearly a similar status. You know that an argument's valid, has true premises, so its conclusion must be true. Mm. That gives you a decisive reason to believe the conclusion. Now, that's a normative claim, the claim about the decisive mm. reason. And it obviously has a similar status to the claim that the argument is valid. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, when people think about morality, they think, oh, well, you know, people disagree. And they, it's interesting that they give abortion in America as the main example. That's not a good counterexample because it's a borderline case. You'd expect people to disagree about a borderline case. Mm. And so I think people rush much too quickly to the conclusion that there can't be moral truths. Um, uh, would you say that your view is similar to, for example, Peter Singer here? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't want to boast, but Singer used to be uh, a kind of emotivist like Hare, mm. who he greatly admired. Now, he agrees with me. <laughs> he thinks there are irreducibly normative truths. And curiously... Uh, some other people have switched around to this view, and for this following odd reason, uh, I'll speak fast because it may be not very relevant. Putnam says in a recent book, nothing has done so much damage to all branches of analytical philosophy in the 20th century than Quine-inspired ontology, because what they all thought 
if you believe in normative truths, you're admitting strange entities to reality. It's like an argument that the philosopher gave that arithmetic is false because there aren't any numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go and look at the world, there aren't any numbers. Mm-hmm. Where do they? Well, if they don't exist, can't be true. Oh, that's a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ontology shouldn't be about what exists, and you try and have as few as possible. It should be about all the different ways in which things exist and how they're related to another. Mm. Um, so I think uh, moral philosophers, and Mackey famously said, too queer to be part of the fabric of the universe, these moral truths. Well, they're not part of the fabric of the universe. No. Uh, they're like mathematical modal. And, yeah. And you don't need evidence. You couldn't have evidence against or for. No, yeah. It's just not so. empirically discoverable. So I compare it with the other three because you can reach these truths by thinking it's the only way to do it. Uh, How would you define, I mean, the discussion about a naturalistic worldview and materialistic worldview, and how do you separate between those definitions? Well, I rather ignore them because Hmm. normative naturalists believe that all normative concepts and truths refer to natural properties, empirically discoverable. And I just think that's not true. Uh, And one very influential naturalist has now come around and says, yes, if it doesn't commit me to strange entities, I do believe there are these normative truths. Um, So... But but couldn't you extend the definition of naturalism to include this? No. I mean, numbers are a perfectly good example. There's no way of thinking about the natural world which would include numbers. Mm. So you're not a naturalist when it comes to the world? No. No. So what what word would you use? Well, a (laughs) non-naturalist. But that's only in the sense in which mathematicians are not naturalists. Mm. Some mathematicians actually insist that they're not one of the natural sciences. They're used by physics. Yeah, that's another. But they're not themselves talking about it. The problem is when you hear people say we're non naturalists, they often mean they think believe in ghosts and gods and everything. So. Oh, yes, no, but you have to clear that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, mm. But I mean, to think that prime numbers are like ghosts would be a huge mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. Um, and I mean, one of the thoughts that I find most. Um, thrilling to think about, as do many, uh, it, because it really makes you feel sublime. And it also puts God in his place. You ask, why does anything exist? And why are things as they are? Why? Now, somebody said to me once, well, it couldn't be true that nothing ever existed, mm. because there would have been the truth that nothing existed. That, that truth doesn't have to exist, it just needs to be true. And when I imagine how it would have been if nothing had existed, no stars, no space, no time, I'm not imagining away numbers, because mm. they're just not part of that. Mm, I see. Um, what would you say are what would you say are the reasons to believe that there is an external world outside our brains? Um, I don't discuss those questions much. 
I was, when I began to be interested in philosophy, I was very put off by a, a well-written book by Freddie Dare, which gave the impression that the main aim in most parts of philosophy was to refute the skeptic. Mm. And I think it's interesting, but I don't take it very seriously. Um, mm. I think Nagel's book, The Last Word, uh, discusses this rather well. Mm. Um, okay. mm. So I don't think much about that. No, I think. Uh, what is your main focus on your work right now? Oh, I'm doing several things. Um, I suppose the main thing I'm doing is to return to problems in my first book, in particular, and this was discussed in the seminars yesterday, arguments for what I call the repugnant conclusion, mm. that compared with the existence of billions of people with lives better than that of almost any human, compared with that, it would be better if all that existed was enough creatures who had some slight pleasure, basking, lizards basking in the sun. But, you know, all of that pleasure adds up and it would be better than the world. So that's a very repugnant conclusion mm. and I think there are now ways of avoiding it. You think so? Because in my book, Reasons and Persons, mm. I said I didn't know how to answer the arguments and I'm now trying to do that. Okay. Um, is that in, in your book, On What Matters? No, that's in the, the first book, Reasons and Persons. Okay, yeah. Um, but I mean, your ans you're trying to answer in this. Is, has you written that down yet? No, I'm working on it. You asked what I'm working oh, okay, on. Okay, I see, I see. Okay, I see. So that's what I gave my talk on yeah. at the conference yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you think we could make philosophy more relevant to people in the world today? Obviously, they need to be more oriented towards that, but how do we make that happen? Um, well, it doesn't have to be presented as philosophy. I mean, one thing that I think is clear is that many people think and argue clearly and well in the way that philosophers keep trying to do, uh, although they've never been subject to philosophy. Mm. Some people are just naturally good at it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I need to mention and this may be more of an issue, I don't know what the position is here, that there's this disastrous gulf in philosophy between two families of views with the oddly non-matching names, analytic philosophy and continental. Mm. And there are some admirable analytic philosophers in Sweden. They have a journal, Theoria, which is actually published in English mm -hmm. with summaries in Swedish. I don't know, there may be lots of Swedish philosophers who are interested in Heidegger and people like that. Not much. No, but it's a completely different world. And I was shocked to learn recently that for three decades after the Second World War, there was not a single moral philosopher in any French university. It just ceased to do it. Why? Well, the influence of Nietzsche and so on. So what you're saying is that this continental philosophy is a problem? Well, it's completely different. I assume that if you spent a long time to understand Heidegger, there'd be some interesting thoughts. But it's such a different way of doing it, and it's so obscure. Mm. And it has no... not in touch with science at all. Mm. And I, at the start of my career, I remember I went to two talks 
a talk about the meaning of life by a French philosopher and a talk about some very trivial subject by an analytic English philosopher. And I thought, well, what do you do? Do you try and get the exciting philosophers to be clear or the clear philosophers to discuss exciting things? And I went for the second, and that's what later happened. Because when I entered philosophy, it was very narrow. Um, but later, in particular, I think the best single book to introduce people to philosophy is Thomas Nagel's The View from Nowhere. Mm. He was given a, a, a Rudolf Schock prize yeah, some years right. ago. Yeah, yeah, I saw that uh, yeah. conference. Lecture I, think, I think that's the most exciting But he book. is now writing on quite weird things. Oh, about well, he has this very rash subtitle, <laughs> how uh, reductive Darwinian theory is almost certainly wrong. Yeah. Uh, he shouldn't have had that subtitle. What he's doing is he's raising various worries and objections, I think, rather well. Uh, the largest part of the book isn't about Darwin at all. It's about the mind-body problem, consciousness. Yeah, but even that, isn't that quite queer? <laughs> well, no, because um, I think a lot of people have been kind of terrorized into being physicalists by the status of physics as the ultimate science and so on. But it's very far from clear whether and in what sense such things as feelings of great pain can be said just to be physical events in the brain. And basically that's what the physicalists have been saying. Yeah. Uh, now, the alternative is... I mean, actually, there's one physicalist friend of mine, Galen Strawson, who does assume, I think rather dogmatically, that all truths have to be physical truths. But then he says, well, we know very little about the physical world. The bit we really understand is conscious experience, because we, we have that ourselves. We don't really know much about atoms and particles. So that's a way of saying, I'm a physicalist, because I know what bits of matter is like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but just if, if it's just atoms moving around, it's very hard to see how that but no, nature is suggesting that uh, consciousness could be a in, intrinsic value of no what you call it in english um a qualia a primitive yes. qualia of matter well i don't know why you should call it of matter mm -hmm. um and that's part of the objection to physicalism that it's taking uh an overly simple view about I mean, it's like the Quinean view that you should commit yourself to as few entities. Uh, I mean, Quine, he began by saying you can't admit that there are abstract entities. Mm. You know, we reject them entirely. And then when he realized that you couldn't do physics without mathematics, which has abstract entities, in particular sets, he thought, oh, well, I have to believe that there are such things as sets. And then, as I say, it's rather like there was this punch cartoon in which the lady at the house says to the parliament, Betsy, Betsy, I hear you have a child, you know. Baby, she said. Yes, ma'am, but it's a very small baby. <laughs> Now, that's what Quine said when he admitted sets. Well, if you admit one abstract entity, as he did, you should admit the other. Mm, I see and, I mean, a good example 
Uh, suppose you wonder whether there's an undiscovered proof of some theorem. Well, I mean, it might be true that there is such a proof, but it's not part of the natural world. And when you say there is such a proof, you're not claiming that it exists in the way in which concrete... But you still would say that you, you, you don't invent it, but you discover it. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. That's like that Gödel's view of yes. mathematics. Yes, I mean, he made remarks which suggested that we had a kind of perceptual contact with numbers. And that's what led other people to be sceptical. I mean, there's a famous book which argues that arithmetic is all false because there aren't any numbers. Mm. Um, but that isn't how you know about them, kinds of perception of them. Mm. Uh, we are able to reach truths of this kind that are not about empirically discoverable properties. We don't yet know how we do it, but I think we do. Mm. Now, quite a lot of my work has been an attempt to show that there isn't actually or there will not always be deep disagreement. The reason we think that mathematics has all these truths is that the mathematicians all agree. Mm. And people say, well, there can't be any moral truths because you just look at moral disagreement. But most moral disagreements can be explained in ways that don't conflict with the view that in ideal conditions we knew all the relevant facts and were not subject to distorting influences we would sufficiently closely agree and actually one quite good example that I discuss is the belief that pain and suffering is bad in the sense that we all have reasons to want to avoid it and so on now no one has doubted that unless they either haven't had the right concepts or they've been under theoretical distortion. And one example of the latter is Aquinas' view that nothing that God created is bad, it's just the absence of the good. Mm -hmm. And that implies that what's bad about pain is that it's like being unconscious. You know, there's nothing good. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a huge mistake, but he made it because he was under such pressure. Mm -hmm. And if you're not subject to a distorting influence, everybody believes that it's bad to be in agony. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I was, have been much concerned with, and I mentioned in my talk, is the way in which in the last 70 years, partly philosophers have led many people, including economists, to think that mm-hmm. we have reasons for acting given by our desires, but we don't have any reasons to have the desires. Mm-hmm. And on this view... You don't have any reason to want to avoid future agony. That's a terrible view. Mm. Uh, and it's done great damage. Mm. 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 But, do, okay, let me ask just a few more things. What, what, I asked you here about uh, the need for an enlightenment. Yes, uh, and I said, well, you don't need a new one because no. lots of the old enlightenment just needs to be strengthened. strengthened. Yeah, but, but I mean, looking at the world today where obviously a lot of people think it's right to inflict pain on others, at least. Well, things have been dramatically changing. I believe there's a wonderful book by one of the writers of such books that I most admire, that's Stephen Pinker, mm. The Better Angels of Our Nature, yes. I think it's called. I haven't read it yet, but if what he's claiming 
is that we are becoming much less cruel, which I think is true. Mm. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you couldn't now have in public exhibition uh, people being... Killed. No. Well, not just killed, but they started by being drawn and quartered. They did terrible mm. torture before killing them. Couldn't do that now. No. I mean, I was born at kind of the lowest point of human history, 1942. Um, so in the middle of the 20th century, appalling that things happen. But there's very little like that now, actually. Mm. Well, the world is Rwanda genocide, Rwanda. Yeah, but 94. Yeah, well, there's much less of that. Mm. Um, that was 20 years ago. But what I mean is, of course, you're right when it comes to quantity. But what I mean is, there's a lot of people who thinks that by divine inspiration they have the right oh, to torture others. Okay. Uh, yes, though actually, there's. I don't want to say something shocking, but there's one view that many people have, which is clearly a mistake, which is the view that it's always wrong to torture. Mm. Now, in most cases it is, mm. but if someone knows where the nuclear bomb is mm. that's yeah. about to explode, and the point is you start inflicting pain on him, he can stop it at any time mm. by telling you where the bomb is. Yeah. It would be ridiculous to say but that would be wrong. I agree. I agree. But on the other hand, Dick Hare rightly said, even if you think that torture is sometimes justified, if you are in a position in which you're going to be tempted to do it, you should adopt a policy, never torture. So as a policy, I'm in favour. Mm. Mm. Um, but there are lots of ways in which you need to simplify some mm. complexities. Mm. To make it but if you look at the influence of religion in the world, obviously people do really bad things in the name of God. Yes. And how, how should we strengthen, how should we be able to strengthen the Enlightenment to make that decrease? Well, <laughs> big question. I, as I may have said, I, when I taught at Harvard, three of the brightest undergraduates yeah. lost their belief in God after writing an essay for me on the problem of evil. Mm. Um, so that's what we should strive for, to make people stop believing in, in God. I think that would help. That would help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it'd go the way Europe has gone. Mm. It's the big difference between Europe and America. Mm -hmm. That religion has very little major role here. I mean, people, some people will go on saying God exists, but they don't live their life in a way that's significantly affected no. by God. Um, no, that's true, but still, uh, the, some, uh, I mean, Christianity is growing in Asia. And in well, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, true, that's true. And also a lot of uh, superstitious beliefs with, you know, uh, uh, witches and things. Like yes. That. Yes, no, it's amazing how people can believe, say, in horoscopes yeah. or <laughs> palmistry. Yeah. Yeah.